Welcome to The Business Grind, where we give you an inside perspective on what it takes to start, build, and run a successful business. Here are your hosts, Danny Shaw and Sean Michael Wellington. Hello to everyone in podcast land today. Thanks for joining us. Sean, how you feeling? Feeling good and ready to cross over and slam dunk. <laughs> Did you have that? Was you waiting to say that? I feel like you nah, were waiting to say it that. it kind of just as we were talking, but. <laughs> All right, well, I'm not even mad. Go ahead and set it up. All right, so um, today's episode, we're going to discuss uh, Untold, the rise and fall of Anne One, uh, the documentary. We're going to, you know, obviously share our thoughts, uh, some, some key takeaways, and, you know, just discuss which parts resonated with us uh, and all that good stuff as we do in our business uh, reviews of movies and so forth, right? All right, so there's a lot going on here. Where, where would where would we like to begin first, Sean? I think we should probably start with explaining for those who may not know what Anwin is. We may have some younger, <laughs> younger <laughs> listeners, or maybe just not in part of that culture. So uh, yeah. let's explain what Anwin is. Let's get into it. All right, so for the uninitiated, uh, I guess we can say Anwin was a clothing and basketball uh, sneaker company, right? Uh, that was. Essentially, their whole aesthetic, their whole brand was really based around street culture, street basketball culture, right? Yeah, so like uh, sneakers and athletic wear, t-shirts and Mm -hmm. things like that. Right, right. And initially, when they first started, you know, they started as the t-shirt company, and the t-shirt company was essentially just... slogans of trash talk that you would say at you know in basketball game along with the logo of their character uh so it'd be like you know you know pass the ball save yourself the embarrassment and stuff like that right like just uh just a whole bunch of different phrases and trash talk with the logo of the character oh and also let's also uh explain the term and one so and one is a term you say when you're playing basketball and you know as you are going to score you might get fouled, and even as you're getting fouled, you still shoot it or do something, and, and the ball still goes in. So that point counts as as well as the additional foul, the extra point, the and one. So, you know, I'm trying to lay up. Somebody grab me. I get it in, and you yell, and one, right? So that is the, you know, where the name comes from for the company, right? Yeah, and it kind of underscores that they were very much like tapping into the streetball culture, right? Because you don't say and one in a, I mean, people probably say it, but you don't officially call and one in an NBA game, right? Right. There's no and one on the scoreboard or anything like that. So it's definitely moving away from traditional NBA and basketball athletics and really diving into like the street culture and the vernacular. Exactly, exactly. So that's definitely uh, the the genesis or the foundation of what and ball is about. Uh, did you rock in one when you was coming up, Sean? You know, I didn't. Um, okay. I, I always, like, everyone around me did. I just never, you know, I had one of those um, old school Estonian parents who didn't necessarily buy you all the designers. <laughs> so um, during that time, yeah, during that time, I couldn't really pull an and one. Oh. They wouldn't buy me they an one. They was not with it. <laughs> nah, but it was very, very, everyone in class was wearing them. I remember that. It was so. like, and none for you. None. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, nah, all right. So I, rock, I rocked the shorts a few times. I had a few and one shorts, but I'm going to say, oh, this going to sound so, it's going to sound corny, but whatever. Is it going to date you? What? No, nah, it's not even that. I I didn't like to wear the shirts because I just thought the, 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 the logo was ugly. 
the the mm. logo was the uh the the faceless basketball player uh with his shorts and playing ball and to me you know because i was illustrating and drawing and all of that good stuff it just always looked like an unfinished drawing it looked like a lot of my unfinished drawings to be quite honest it's like no face no nothing just a rough sketch and you know the logo just didn't really appeal to me to be quite honest but i get why i was you know, illustrated and drawn and stuff like that. But I definitely had a few shorts, oversized shorts, trying to cut it up on the courts for sure. So where do you think, you know, just to give it some context, you know, we got Adidas, mm -hmm. we got, you know, Reebok, we mm -hmm. got Nike. Where did N one like fit in terms of popularity and at, at, at its peak, you think? Oh, N one was up there without question. I think, yeah. and we're going to get into that. I think at a certain point, N one was definitely up there in popularity. Uh, if we talking about streetwear, street culture, you know, listen, I know there's pictures floating around me <laughs> somewhere where I used to be into all the brands, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There was another brand. Oh man, I might we might have to do an episode on that. It's another brand called School of Hard Knocks that I used to. Oh God, I used to love that brand religiously. The logos, the drawings, all of that stuff, or the characters. Uh, and yeah, I remember they used to abbreviate it would be S O H H a lot. Yep, yep, or H N, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, School of Hard Knocks, uh, and one, but and one was up there, like, and one was considered the uh, you know, it wasn't as big as Nike, but if you was cool and you was on the streets and you know, playing ball and all that, you definitely and one definitely had props, it had a lot of uh, cool points with the kids back then for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but um, as we'll see, couldn't really maintain that long-term longevity due to various reasons, right? Right. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, it was up there, for sure. It was definitely up there, without question. Yeah, I mean, it was N1, and it was, um, I feel like there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, again, this is not streetball culture. This mm -hmm. is a little different of, mm -hmm. a, of, a, of a brand, but I feel like FUBU was big, too. Mm -hmm. It was N1 and FUBU, kind of mm -hmm. like the two. Yeah, you know, yeah. And one Fubu, it was a lot of. I don't want to say iceberg. I think that might be putting it in a little bit different area. That was a little, and I think that was yeah. a little late. At least for me, that was a little later. That was yeah. like you know, Jay Z made iceberg hot or whoever did at the time. Okay, so. fair enough, fair enough. All right, so I think that's a, enough of a of a foundation or intro to people who may not be aware of what M one was or right so you know what it means now and you know right. <laughs> what the brand uh what the brand actually is you know so. why i wasn't rocking no shirts but maybe i'll rock a few of the shorts all that good stuff all right um all right so let's get it so as we said it started as a t-shirt you know company uh initially and it was started by uh three gentlemen from uh i believe they they were grad students at pennsylvania's wharton school and that's where yeah, the Warren business school yep yep yep, yep, yep. so that's where they started so you know, they were grad students, but, uh, you know, um, they played ball a lot. And I believe one of the uh, gentlemen was like, you know, all his other classmates was focusing on what they wanted to do. And he didn't even know what he wanted to do. He just wanted to play, I think, ball all day or something like that. And uh, he just kind of connected with the two other guys at the universities. And they just started putting this idea together and started with the T-shirts and then kind of let it, you know, become what it eventually became which was a multi-million dollar company right yeah and those t-shirts and the slogans they would put on there um that you alluded to earlier was like a big part of their early push right that's mm -hmm. how they kind of got 
the uh, public uh, notice is with those original shirts and you would see quotes that you would see in here <laughs> in, you know, street ball games, but you would never see them in stores until right. one. Right, right, right. So, I mean, I guess my understanding is that they started in 1993, but then by, you know, by 96, which is only like three years later, they had Stefan Marbury as their spokesperson, first spokesperson for, uh, for the sneaker, which not for nothing is a pretty fast turnaround. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, we started this in college three years later. We got Stephon Marbury. Uh, what, did he get injured while wearing their sneakers? Yeah, so the actual <laughs> name of the, the sneaker that oh. they created for oh. the Marbury's, they were called Ankle Breakers, and he <laughs> actually broke his ankle. So it was like horrible, you know, just the worst terrible. scenario for them. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And uh, if in the documentary... You know, the owners are talking about how, um, you know, after that injury happened, Stephon Marbury's, uh, his people, his agents was just looking at the owners like, yo, we're about to trash your whole company. Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they were like almost done before they even started, right? So they kind of went back to the drawing board. They wasn't really messing with sneakers anymore. And then around that time, I would say from around 96, you know, I, I will say, this documentary, it did kind of mess me up because of the timelines. I, I mm -hmm. will say some of the stuff that they were saying in the documentary, I was like, oh, I, I didn't remember it like that, right? So it really made me have to circle back on the timelines. But around after the whole Marbury situation till around 98, they were still doing their thing, clothing and stuff like that, but they wasn't really uh, doing sneakers like that right they were just really trying to expand the brand overall with the with the gear and the clothing they came across a videotape which was essentially like street ball you know stunts uh by uh local uh high school uh, high schoolers in new york uh and uh mainly rafael alston who to people who are familiar with street ball cultures known as skip to my Lou, right mm -hmm. So uh, leveraging that tape and just all these highlights, it wasn't it wasn't NBA highlights. It was like street ball highlights. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they used that in the footage to leverage their brand a bit more and become more prominent. Now, this is one era I do want to just make a little note about because in the documentary, they really try to. I feel like they try to associate it with the rocker. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, from the footage, yes, yeah, from the footage they, and that wasn't necessarily the case. So, people who are not uh, familiar with the Rucker, the Rucker is a basketball tournament uh, in Harlem, world famous, world renowned. You know, you go there to kind of earn your stripes. It's been going on for years, decades, generations. Dr. J been out there, um, Kobe. You know, uh, all the, all the, how would I say? NBA legends who kind of want to earn their their street stripes go and play in the summer there, right? Yeah. Um, to an extent, so uh, it's, it's it's you know it's a battleground. You earn your uh, earn your stripes and so forth. But I, in the documentary, they kind of try to associate it with Rucker, which I was like, I think that's a little bit misrepresentation, though. You know, um, but I guess it was done to kind of illustrate the importance of street ball and why it's so important to the culture, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, I want to get your thoughts, but to me, it was interesting that, you know, they were kind of, you know, they had a, they took an L, right? Mm -hmm. Marbury going down, mm -hmm. that ruined their, their, uh, all the branding and the optics for their new sneaker. Mm -hmm. And they kind of got gifted this lifeline 
uh, out of nowhere with this street ball footage that you're talking about. Right. But it wasn't anything, you know, people did the work for them. Right. Right? People <laughs> put together this compilation of street ball and send it to them, right? Uh -huh. Send it to them. Right. So they really just got gifted this and, and it was and it was a blessing. They used it and they were able to rebrand and build rebuild their audience off of the N one mixtapes, but they became known as eventually. So mm -hmm. um just curious, what do you think about that? It's like sometimes you get blessed with a happy accident and it helps your business. But it seems as though that was a, such a core part of their business. Granted, you know, they started in apparel and sneakers, but the annual mixtape is what is their marketing. That's how everybody right. knew them. So mm -hmm. it's just interesting that that's not something that they originated, that they created. Well, I don't think they could have originated that. If it's just going to be, you know, sometimes you are gifted uh, a, a gift to help the business and you're blessed and fortunate that something comes your way. And then, you know, sometimes you're able to create something. But if we're just being transparent, I don't think the founders would have been able to think of a, of doing the mixtape as an idea to help their brand uh, for what it is, right? Like it's street ball, it's street culture. Uh, the founders was not from the streets. They're three white guys, right? Um, who were at Wal Wharton in grad school. Like I personally would not have, I wouldn't expect them to be playing street ball or even to know about that uh, aspect of basketball culture, right? Yeah, it so. was, um, even though they were able to tap into, through their love of basketball, a right. part of the culture that they may not have had access to before, mm -hmm. the N1 mixtape was a whole nother side of it. Like, it was even deeper into that culture, right. and they got gifted it. Yeah, yeah, they even said, they didn't even know what it was. <laughs> I was like, what is this? <laughs> they literally said, what is this, right? So, um, and these things happen sometimes. So, they was definitely gifted, and then they 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 said you know they started giving these mixtapes out and so forth and then like over the weekend they uh i guess people were calling and saying hey when's the next mixtape coming out we need to see more of these highlight reels and so forth and kind of just boomed and, and you know boomed their business even more so right um but speaking of being gifted they was also gifted another scenario to help the business right uh and that was uh Vince Carter wearing yeah. Vince Carter was wearing their sneakers for free during his famous uh all-star dunk competition right yeah um, probably one of the most famous more, dunk contests of all time yeah and Vince Carter just happened to be wearing them yeah yep. and I remember watching that um all-star competition uh dunking contest actually uh but yeah uh that was quite that was a moment in the culture, right? Uh, that contest right there, and Vince Carter, Vince Carter won, uh, in in stunning fashion while wearing and one sneakers, the Tai Chi's, I believe, and uh, and was wearing it for free, which also boosted the and one profile even more and even made them more successful, right? They're having considerable success at this moment, at this point, you know, they got NBA uh, recognition, um. They have the streets, right, as well. And then they're also on the radar of Nike all of a sudden, right? Yeah, in terms <laughs> of competition, right? Right, right. So, you know, this little upstart is, is doing their thing and trying to figure things out. And then, you know, Nike's like, who are these folks over here? And then I guess video footage got leaked at one of the Nike uh, board meetings that essentially had the AM1 logo in a crosshair as a target like we gotta get them out the paint right yeah. uh so now you know you go from 
again, this is from 93 to mid, late 90s to, you know, you went from a startup in college to now you're on Nike's radar and they're trying to take you out the game. Meanwhile, you're still trying to figure out even what your own company and coach is about. But they are having tremendous success. Like they are, you know, there's a saying when sometimes when the money comes, it comes so fast at once, you kind of get overwhelmed, right? Yeah. Um. Sometimes. And that kind of seems like what happened with them. They were growing so fast, deals, um, you know, they had to expand their office. They had a basketball court set up in the office. Uh, then they started doing the M1 mixtape tours. You know, um, it, it was a lot going on at once, right? They discussed a lot about the creative, right? Because there were right. three founders, mm -hmm. and one of them was just kind of in a cave creating designs <laughs> and just banging them out the whole time. So right. he wasn't really... Um, he, he was setting himself up for burnout, put it that way. He oh, definitely was setting himself up for burnout. Like, I think he moved to Taiwan at one point just to focus on the sneakers designs and the production of the sneakers. And... They was selling. It was bangers. They was some good designs, and they was selling. But he was burnt out, and he was talking about how, you know, they was calling him three a.m. from the United States. Like, how's the new designs coming? And you know, he was just, he really was hermit mode, and then burnt himself out uh, by the work that he did and for the sneakers and for the company as a whole. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, make make note of that when people talk about grinding and I die when you you know, sleep when I'm dead type mentality for the business because he was he was close to death uh, for the yeah, business. Yeah, and it was affecting, you know, it affects the business. If your main creative who's designing everything mm -hmm. gets burned out, then where do you go from there? I would like to talk a little bit about the the actual tour and the mixtapes because I don't think people might be fully aware what that was, right? Yeah. Um, so the tour was essentially uh, M1 going on tour to different cities, putting on these basketball games with their roster of street basketball players, right? To help promote the brand and all of that stuff, right? So you had these players and they, you know, they had they had these entertaining names. It was like bat it was like wrestling names, right? Not um <laughs> you had like um Skip to Skip to, Malou. Skip to Malou, who I already mentioned. You had Hot Sauce, right? Mm -hmm. You had a Half Man, Half Amazing. You had the Dribble Machine. You had, um, you know, the Professor. Can't forget about the Professor. Um, you know, Main Event, AO. It was just a lot of folks, you know, with these names. You know, Helicopter. It was a, it was a quite the roster of these street ballers who would go on tour and put on these shows and, you know, wow, the crowd. It, But it was... It was fun. It was entertaining. By no means was it an NBA game, right? Whole different structure, but it was very successful and, and really brought the crowds out in their own right and really attracted, like, I would say the youth of, of the culture. Uh, they really tapped into it. And along with these tours, they, you know, was giving out, uh, again, the highlight reels, the tapes, all of that stuff. It was really, it was his own movement. <laughs> and it's, it was his own movement. And I don't, you know, I don't say that lightly, right? It was it's definitely his own movement. So when does the trouble start, Sean? Well, you alluded <laughs> to it a little bit with Nike, right? Nike right. was on their heels, uh -huh. um, and the turning point was kind of um, another infamous commercial that I'm, <clears throat> I'm sure maybe burned into your memories from the '90s or uh -huh. '90s slash 2000s. Uh -huh. But that, uh, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. What do you call it? Like the DJ? It was uh, Nike. Commercial? The way the way I described it, because that was a hot commercial. I sure. Yeah, they killed it. They killed that commercial. So Nike essentially, 
I don't know what I would call it. I would just call it that is that Nike commercial when they was bouncing the ball to a beat. That was mm-hmm. that was but it was hot, right? And it was yeah. very, it was very iconic. I mean, I remember even what one of them scary, scary movies. Movie. Yeah, did a it spoof was a scary on movie it. Too. Right? Yeah, they did a little spoof on it. That mm-hmm. was a very cultural defining commercial and and uh signaled to the basketball culture. So, yeah, uh, essentially, you know, Nike they didn't really have a way into that market just yet, but they saw what M one was doing and, you know, M one ain't I guess didn't have the vision or just they still figuring other things out. Nike said, All right, good, we got this. We're gonna do our own version of that. Did that commercial had all the NBA stars, which also included Vince Carter, surprisingly, who back in the day had endorsed the M ones for free, right? Right. And one was in the Nike Vince Carter was in the Nike commercial. And that, Which I'm sure was intentional. Come oh on, yeah, that like. was that was a little you know little little bravado there, um, and that was a major blow to M1. You know, it wasn't like the death, the knockout punch, but that right there definitely shifted uh, the perspective. I think a bit because Nike has always been like a mainstay in the basketball culture. Like we're not, we don't need to undersell that, right? Like Nike has always been around, but. There was at that time Nike really wasn't the streets, right? Yeah, they weren't. They didn't have a street ball lane yet, and right. that just opened it up wide for them. And they're taking market share away from anyone now. Right, so. right. So that was one of the big blows to M one that kind of started, uh, you know, putting a little cracks in their in their defense. What would you say was the other, you know, blows to the company? <clears throat> I think the other big thing was the tour, right? You talked mm-hmm. about the tour, and it was a successful idea and a smart way to, you know, expand the audience, get your your talent out there. Mm-hmm. But they didn't seem to have, and this is my opinion now. I'm editorializing a little bit. You can tell me <laughs> if you disagree, but they didn't seem to have the talent relations infrastructure needed to make that work. Mm, you know, I didn't even think of that. You're right. I was I was looking at it from just. That's a good way to put it. The talent relationship infrastructure was not in place. That, yeah. Yeah, that is good. I I didn't think of it like that. Yeah. That that I mean cuz it was really yeah. it was really a lot of relationship and it mm-hmm. was just a lot of communication things that if you had a head of talent relations or a head of player mm-hmm. management, player mm-hmm. operations, whatever you call it, right? Mm-hmm. They might have mitigated some of those issues. You you're so. right. I didn't think of it. I was looking at it from a perspective of he didn't think it through. I was just thinking as a as a as a operation, they didn't think the tour through from a business operation. But you kinda mm-hmm. hit it right on the head when you said the talent relationship wasn't there. And so from my understanding, you know, these tools was only done you know on short sprints right like during the summer and stuff like that so they they weren't like competing with the nba and trying to do that but you know they had these little three month tours and they would play pay the players accordingly now this is where it started getting dicey right because initially everyone's in the struggle together and you know we see the transition they were in these you know little broken down vans going from city to city with these tours so now that the money's coming in and they're they're playing all over the world, they're playing in Japan and China internationally, you know, and then you start seeing, okay, well, someone sells contract is getting more based off, mm-hmm. you know, what what are we basing it on? Is it off popularity? Is it off of merchandise? You know, um, you know, then we start seeing the animosities and the end fighting amongst the players because of this, right? You know, they had players you know, the players would have to go to the uh, 
factories <laughs> as a courtesy to greet the people who was packing up the N1 merchandise. They would also see, um, you know, at the events, all this merchandise with their likeness being on the merchandise. And, and even it, it was even a point where there was video games, right? There was video games, N1 video games and TV shows. And they weren't getting compensated or they felt they didn't get fairly compensated. kind of led to the... Uh, the turmoil all of a sudden what was once harmony uh, harmony amongst the players started really turning into uh, a lot of tension and infighting right yeah mm-hmm. and then you talked about it like what what why is this person making more than this next person right mm-hmm. and for the creators and the founders it could have been a perfect justification for all those reasons right mm-hmm. um this person's selling more merchandise this mm-hmm. person you know whatever the case may be i'm sure right. there's plenty of reasons but if it's not being effectively communicated to the talent, they're mm-hmm. just going to feel some type of way, and then they're going to, you know, be in competition with each other, not in a good way, and uh, not a healthy competition. They're going to be financially trying to compete with each other. So right and right, and as we saw, there were some players who were more uh, popular, you know, uh, so they were getting the bigger, bigger checks. Like uh, Hot Sauce was was a superstar right he had like mm-hmm. a talking car and two houses and he even had that movie i forgot he was in that streetball movie uh um, with uh, wayne brady yes yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and anthony mackie yeah, yeah. Like, is it called I crossover the i think it was called crossover, crossover yep. right it is so crossover, yep. you know high source was obviously you know he was a phenomenon and then you had professor who you know professor was popular but then you saw a little bit of the um animosity and like what I saw with the professor was like they embraced him at first, you know. It's like, oh, he's he's the white guy that can ball. But then when it started bringing him that popularity and obviously a bigger uh, contract than some of the other players, you know, kind of looked like, all right, jealousy. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that was unfortunate. Um, and Skip Tamalu, who was an NBA player as well as a street baller, so I feel like he might not have been as pressed about the contracts as you know uh, some of the other players. So you just started seeing some of that. Um, but I do agree. I, I think that could have been a, a situation that could have been avoided if the yeah. owners had, you know, like you said, talent relationship, maybe just communicated what the basis of compensation, what the compensation was based on and stuff like that instead of just, you know, you don't want to leave things to speculation, right? Yep. And I will say, I think there's another point that, that I picked up, or at least I just made when I watched it, was that you had people from two different worlds, right? You had people mm-hmm. doing business from two different worlds. Uh, and the, you know, culture and values of one arena may not have translated to the other, right? So yeah. for a lot of these players, you know, street ballers and stuff like that, it's street ball. They are from the streets, right? It's, and it's nothing, to, don't need to sugarcoat it. They may, uh, the, the, the perception of what should and should not have happened may not have been apparent to them right away, right? Uh, right. And so maybe they were not aware of, well, I should be compensated like this, or not even saying what they should be compensated, just to even ask and to discuss to see what is even a possibility, right? Now you're referring to the players, right? Not the necessarily. Play. I'm talking being... about the players. Talking yeah, about the not play. necessarily being involved in their compensation structure. Yeah, right. right. Like I just think you know, if I'm watching it, oh man, I, I could that topic alone could be an episode in itself. Because if I'm when I got to that part, it really reminded me of like the music industry. 
and how sure. a lot of these rap crews, you know, it's all love at one point, but then when when the money stops flowing in, then that's when we start hearing all the stories. I got robbed. I didn't. I wasn't compensated. But when everything is good and you know everybody on tour and you know seeing the world, it's exciting and it's fun and you live in life and that's great as it should be. But then you, you I don't want to say you you do neglect to cover the business side, but I also think there's just that reluctance because you don't want to mess up the good time, right? Good thing. Yep, don't yeah. mess with the good thing. And you're scared to ask the question thinking, oh, they might realize you don't belong here. <laughs> right, right. So. so, and I kind of felt I got a lot of that towards the end of the, the, the documentary when they started talking about the fallout and who got paid and who didn't get paid. And, and that was very unfortunate to see and hear about, you know? I mean, yeah, you're right, because they took a bunch of street ballers and they were like, y'all come on tour and make more money, you know, make money playing right. ball. And, and probably more money than you've ever made. If sure. You, you know. And just that thought is like, I could make money to play basketball, what I'm doing anyway, okay. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. once you start seeing the checks and other people getting different zeros or mm -hmm. whatever it is, you're not going to think about it as fun and, oh, I'm just grateful to be here anymore. Now you care about your value and your worth. So. All right. And I think another thing to make, to be mindful of is that for a lot of these players, you know, the dreams, the opportunity to play in the NBA was not there, right? Like no. most of them, they had reached, they had passed uh, their prime NBA playing years, right? They had the of getting drafted. And, you know, even some of them admitted, like, I just didn't have that basketball IQ to be an NBA player or I didn't have that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and NBA is a whole different type of rules and this different sets. So for them, it's like this is like my last shot. I think you know to an extent, right? Like, it's what else am I gonna do? So we're gonna do it. We're gonna take it, and then ultimately, this is you know we saw the outcome of that, the fallout from that. Yep, and they probably made a lot of money along the way. They being the the players and the creators. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, ultimately. Uh, you know, we talked about Nike and we talked about the tour kind of were some of the biggest catalysts in their downfall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so ultimately, you know, there was other things happening along the way. Uh, you started seeing, like, you know, um, just... This is where it got a little confusing for me and maybe I just couldn't understand was they started when they sold the company. The founders sold the company. But I don't think I was totally clear on what happened. It wasn't like they were losing money, right? Like, did you get that sense? I just got the sense that they just decided to get out and sell the company. I, I'll be honest. I got the sense that, it, yeah, it was too much for them to handle. Mm -hmm. um, so it was partially the pressure from Nike, them, mm -hmm. you know, you know, being down in their market and right. taking their market share, part of that, and also the stress of dealing with the players and mm -hmm. all of those issues. I it, that's just the impression I got from right. the documentary. It right. may not be exactly true, but that's the impression that's I got. That's the way it was portrayed. They didn't want to be involved anymore. Yeah, yeah that's that's kind of the same thing. Yeah, so it wasn't like they were leading money and had to liquidate it and just go out of business. They were still a viable company, still doing their thing, but you know. The, they decided that it was time to get out and sell the company. And this is when it kind of felt just, you know, very tragic, right? Um, yeah. Because uh, what happened is the players were expecting updates to their contracts and expecting new contracts for the new tour. And it was just getting updates like, hey, 
something is about to happen, sit tight, we don't know what's going on. But basically, they didn't get any updates on what was happening. They didn't know if it was a sell or a buyout. They just really didn't know. And then the owners sold the company, and essentially that ended the tour. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they sold the company, and that was it. You know, they made their money and then kind of left the players. Uh, I mean, at least the way it was portrayed, high and dry, or most of the players. Like, there may have been some players that were still retained for marketing services and stuff like that and some, you know, some overlap and, and contingency plans. But as a whole, the the majority of roster was just kind of left to their own, right? Yeah. And that's when it got, you know, and then you started hearing the testimonials from the players and, you know, some of them just speaking to their experiences and what happened and, you know, their uh, disappointment that they didn't get even a phone call from the owners or some type, no conversation, nothing was really communicated. It's like we sold the company and, and we're out. Yeah. Yeah. So what, with that being said, right, what would you make of some of the testimonials from the players? Well, the players, a lot of different perspectives, right? Right. Um, but I think overall, in general, um, all of all of the players, they weren't really factored into the overall business structure. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that when they and one mixtape took off, it was a content play for them, and it mm-hmm. was a touring play for them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how much, and you know they had contracts for their players and everything. But I don't know how much of it, it was a talent building, and mm-hmm. you know having these people as brand ambassadors, even when they're not playing, they'll move on and help promote the company. Like I don't know if they were thought about in that regard. They were just kind of commodities. They were part mm-hmm. of the content, but they weren't thought as individual investments. If mm-hmm. That makes sense. No, it does. It does. And one of the founders even you know reflected upon, you know maybe they should have thought about setting up the plays in a way where they had stock options so that they can be compensated, you know, in the future down the road. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's definitely a lot of misses, but I, that was a good point. Like they, I don't think they looked at the players or the tour as a part of the bigger company vision. It was like, it was a piece that fueled the other part, but I don't think they recognized how important it was to the overall business. Right. So I think that was part of the downfall, and it may have been the underscore for everything that we already talked about that mm-hmm. led to the downfall. Maybe not so much the Nike thing. They were coming from Nike was coming from the Nike anyway, was coming but from regardless. Yeah, they could have. It could have been intentional, right? They could have felt after what happened with Marbury, they were like, "Look, <laughs> we don't want <laughs> You know, we're gonna play this safe and not invest in people as much as the product. Um, oh. But that was the impression I got. You know, I didn't even think of that. That is a good point. After the Marbury scenario, they said, "We're good. We train. We're changing strategies." Okay. Could be. be. I'm not mad at that. I did feel, you know, towards the end when the different plays was talking about the company and the founders, I was a little conflicted with some of the testimonials, right? Um, Mainly, I don't know if you you remember when Dribbling Machine and um, what's his name? His man's uh, main event was talking in the the room, right? Towards Mm -hmm. the end. And you know, dribbling machine. I, I felt I felt bad for him, uh, well, not bad for him, but bad at how his scenario turned out, right? Uh, because you know he was talking about how he's the type of work he's doing now, and you know, um, you know, people recognize him, and you know, asking him about why is he here and stuff like that, and then hearing him talk about uh, the owners and what his perspective was of the owners. And then you see, like, 
his man didn't his man didn't really agree with him, right? Like main event didn't really agree with him, but main event didn't want to disagree with him on camera either. <laughs> on camera, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I kind I, I kind of felt like main event to be quite honest. Like I don't I don't want I don't want to embarrass my man in front of the camera, but I don't necessarily agree with him. Like I don't think, and I've been there with with my own people. <laughs> you know what I mean? For similar scenarios, like it's not. I get it when you are when you when you've taken a L like that and you know you kind of think about the missed opportunities and stuff but uh I didn't I didn't necessarily agree with his uh, perspective but at the same time I just felt like damn this is unfortunate that it had to come out be this way you know Yeah, yeah. unfortunate is the perfect word perfect yeah. word yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right so uh with that being said from a business perspective what were some of your uh takeaways or learning lessons from watching this documentary about M1. I learned that content is king, right? And mm-hmm. even back then, uh, the content is what got them to the success that they achieved, mm-hmm. um, that M1 mixtape. So that's one big thing I think I learned from that. And then, um, this is an opinion. You have to give the disclaimer out the gate. I have to, yeah. You know, it's right. not going to apply to everything. But to this, I think... In order to be successful in a foreign culture, you have to at least have some sort of grounding in that culture, whether it's a person who is your translator or something that keeps you grounded grounded to that that culture. culture. Yeah. So those will be my two takeaways from that. Well, I like that last point because I I actually, yes, I say that a lot to my students, especially when they want to do things that touches on cultures that they're not a part of and and they want to leverage anything from another culture for their projects i say you gotta have you have to have cultural competency Mm. you gotta have it if you out here just uh skimming off the top of a culture and have no uh, uh, competency to what's going on in their culture you you you, you're doomed it's disrespectful but then on top of being disrespectful you're dooming yourself from the gate right like Mm -hmm. and i so i agree with what you're saying like it got to be some level of knowledge or foot in the in the, in the game and in, in that culture and it didn't seem like the founders of this company had a foot in it it's kind of like they they came upon it and was like oh well we can leverage it for our company like we we there's a difference between trash talk and then being in the street ball culture there's a there's a mm-hmm. difference like there may be some overlap but there's a very big difference in how that goes so uh yeah yeah. yeah, and I don't want to downplay the creator, specifically the designer, too. Right. You can tell he was really no, passionate yeah, about Yeah, he was definitely, so, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. But there is a little, like you said, cultural competency, cultural education. You got to kind of have someone show you the ropes, have them, someone ground you in what's what mm-hmm. in order to maintain that, I right. think. And, you know, they pro- if, in all honesty, they probably was making so much money, it probably wasn't even a thought, right? Like, no. what? what? <laughs> you know how much money? You, you know, I'm good. Um, so yeah, good, good points. Uh, for me, learning lessons, I don't even know if it's really learning lessons because, oh my God, I swear, I felt like as soon as this documentary started, I knew how I was going to end. I swear, <laughs> I, I swear, I felt like, oh, we going to, and I don't even, not even just to be like, buy it. It's just like, all right, because I know Anwan, I grew up on Anwan, you know, and I, st- I see where the company is at today. The company is still around, mind you managed by a brand a company investment firm that manages brands so they're still around but obviously not with the same impact and significance to the culture but um it's still around but 
I feel like once I heard, I didn't know the story, but as soon as I heard the story, as soon as I saw it in the first five minutes, like, oh, we started in, in our dorm rooms at Wharton. I was like, oh, this is, this, I already know where this is going to go. And not, <laughs> and not because it was started in Wharton at business school by, by, by three white guys, right? That's not even the issue. The issue is that for what the brand represented, there's no way that this can start at Wharton and then remain the sustainable culture phenomenon that it was, unless you start infusing it with people from the culture. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this is not going to end good. And I just, I just kept watching it. And I watched the whole doc for all the good times. And when everybody was high and, you know, high on life. And then I was like, oh, here we go. Um, but I do want to say one another thing. And again, this is my opinion, not a takeaway. Um, I'm very averse to starting businesses around the culture. Right. Is that because the tides shift so soon? Why? I'm just curious. The cult, oh, man. Like, this is like a... Man, I've tried to do a business. I've tried a few businesses around the culture. And the culture changes, right? Which is fine, because we could change with the culture. We can change with the culture. I do think that when it... A lot of culture-based businesses, um, we blur the lines so much, right? Um, we blur the lines a lot. And then it's it's like you start... It's very. It feels manipulative, if I would say mm. this, right? So okay. let me let you know what I mean, like it, and I'm I'm probably not even communicating the right what I'm really trying to get at. But let's take it from a perspective of music and and hip hop and rap, right? Like it's it's for the culture, right? But we see it all the time, especially with with the rap crews. At least I see it growing up, right? Everyone's talking about their family. We family. We this. We a family. We a family. And all these business deals is going around, but a lot of people are not. Uh, compensated correctly, or they're not—they're not even knowledgeable, right? And then also, there are hard conversations that have to be had. Uh, sometimes people feel like because they're a contributor, that they are entitled to equity. Uh, I don't know—I don't know the right answer. It all depends, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you know, if a person is contributing the financial funding. And you're contributing, I don't know, you know, some content, and not to dismiss the content, I don't know where the balance lies on compensation and how one should be compensated or not. And that's on a case-by-case basis, right? But mm-hmm. when you start doing it, when, when it's, it's a bit easier when you try to keep it strictly business, and the business isn't based on the culture. But if you start doing it on the culture, I just feel like when you under that umbrella of the culture... Lines get blurred very fast, and then you know you kind of end up like an and one situation where it's like we was family, but then you know because no one was really talked to about the business side of things, and then once this information starts coming out, it's like, but I thought we was family. What about the culture? And even in the and one, it was like the announcer, what was his name, DJ? Uh, oh man, what was his Can't name? Can't remember. Yeah, yeah, he was like oh, DJ set free. He was like. I'm gonna get a check. They like, you know, like so then you start having these factions and I mean you you have this happen in other arenas of business. You have this tech, you have this in, you know, finance. 
it's not that conflicts don't happen in other uh, sectors of business, but I just feel like, and it might just be me from a personal, my personal connection to the culture, because I am of the culture, it just always, it just feels like it's too many landmines to even try to navigate. You'll be battling more than actually working on the business. Yeah, I mean, you got to really have that passion, <laughs> right? right? That creator <laughs> to, to kind of work through all for this. Every, for every brand, for every brand that I've seen, every company that I've seen, every brand that I've seen that has been built around the culture, right? You'll have a few at the top that have become successful from that company, from the culture. A, a, a nice old handful, enough. But then... The, the 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 graveyard of fallen soldiers, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Who have the stories of how they were gypped and robbed because they're understanding, you know, it just I don't know, it's just it's just something I I rather not get involved with nowadays. But I tried. I'm not gonna say I tried. And maybe I'll try again in the future. And that's this is just where I'm at now. But that's just my take on cultural based businesses. Yeah, no, I hear that and I think they might have benefited from some of that advice. <laughs> well, I, so. Oh, yeah, they might have. They might have. Uh, yeah, that's just my own little, uh, you know, musings on culture-based business. And, oh, we should have probably also clarify. When we say for the culture, you know, because there's a lot of culture-based business, I'm speaking specifically to black culture-based business, right? Like, I'm not, right. I'm not just to be clear to anybody who's listening who may not understand what we're talking about in that regard. So, yeah. What do you give it uh, at a, you know, letter grade? Let's give it a letter grade. I mean, I'm going to give it, well, like a letter grade. I'll give it a B. I mean, I just, I felt there was a lot of information that I would have enjoyed getting more insight into, actually. Felt like there was a lot, a lot of information that I, I would have really liked to dig more into. But overall, it was a good story, good telling. Um. Yeah, I I wish it was a little bit longer, you know, and I guess that goes back to the information. Um, so I'll give it a I'll give it a B. Yeah, I'm 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 about the same, maybe a minus. I'll throw on mine a little okay, bit minus, said, but oh. but all the same reasons, all the same uh things. It's like it was good. There was nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I could have take I could have uh, benefited from a little bit. A little bit more. Though. A little bit more. Yeah. And on one last note, uh, I will say one part that I, I really did enjoy in this documentary, though. I really liked when uh, the plays got to play at um, Madison Square Garden. Like, yeah, I, I, that I re- was a good yoga moment. I yeah. really enjoyed that. You know, it was like, yeah, that 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 made me feel good. <laughs> I was like, that was nice to see them, you know, get to play in the garden. And it's like most basketball players' dreams to get to play in the garden. So to see that and see how they were so excited and happy, that was a good a good part of it but uh yeah all right so all that to say you know thought it was a good documentary um some good learning lessons and it was also entertaining at the same time so it wasn't like you had to be so like you can watch this even if you don't have no business aspirations i would say right you could just right or it. even if you don't care about basketball right like even that. if you don't care about basketball so i in that regards is, is definitely uh i would recommend watching it uh solid overall and yeah, and as you, you know, go on your own business journey, hopefully you take some lessons. And especially if you're starting a business based on the culture. <laughs> I mean, please, please uh, try not to make the same mistakes that uh, Anne One made as well. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and thoughts around this movie. And hopefully it provides you with some value as you navigate through your business journey and personal life. 
As always, if you have a question you would like us to answer on the show, shoot us a message on any of our social media channels or shoot us an email at questions at businessgrindshow.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and share on Spotify and iTunes. See you again soon. In the meantime, keep Keep grinding. The Business Grind is for entertainment purposes. Opinions expressed are those solely of the host and guests. Please consult with a professional and exercise discretion before engaging in any business endeavors. I'm out here on the grind. I'm out here on the grind.